0: Okay, thank you, Courtney. Good evening. Fremont, how are you doing this evening? My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors with our church up at the North Expression. We've been gathering together up in Edmonds for a couple of years now. Uh, But it's always uh, great to be back here with you in this way as we open our Bibles together and continue uh, this journey through the book of Ephesians. We're going to explore this passage we heard just a moment ago uh, in Chapter 4 as we finish up Chapter 4. But over the first few chapters of this letter, Paul has really uh, been... Soaring at high altitude. He's been up in the clouds much of the time, exploring very high and very beautiful theological truths. He's been exploring incredible truths about the gospel and what it says about God and what that means for us as individuals and as the church. But here today, we're going to see Paul kind of coming down low. He's going to be descending from uh, these heights down into the nitty gritty of Christian uh, behavior and Christian relationships. In fact, we find ourselves in a passage today that is intensely practical for us. It's a passage that is full of advice, very good advice, very sound advice uh, from the Apostle Paul. It's full of advice about how you and I should be living as Christians. You heard the passage just a moment ago. You heard uh, all of the good advice. Paul says, don't lie to one another. Don't stay angry for too long. Watch your mouth and how you use it. Don't steal, don't be lazy. Instead, Paul says, be truthful, be kind, work hard, and be generous. All of this is good advice, very sound advice from the Apostle Paul. But as I began studying this passage this week, something struck me as I did. I began to wonder whether uh, any of this advice at all, whether all of this advice or any of this advice from the Apostle Paul is really, is really Christian. Is there anything at all about this advice that Paul is giving the Ephesians and that he's giving us that that is unique to uh, Christianity? After all, doesn't most every religion say these same sorts of things? Isn't it true that most every religion, most every ethical system, most every worldview across much of human history will generally tell you not to lie and not to steal, that you need to guard your tongue, that you need to control your anger, Won't they all tell you it's better to be a hard worker than it is to be lazy? It's better to be generous than it is to be stingy? Doesn't everybody agree, for the most part, that these are the things that people should do? And these are the ways that people should be. And if that's the case, if that's true, does that mean it's also true what so many people say? That basically all religions are the same. Aren't they just calling people to the same core sets of behaviors that... Uh, people have agreed upon for a very long time. Now just as a quick side note on that point, you should know that that Paul would say and the Bible would say that uh, one of the main reasons that you find overlap in these different worldviews when it comes to ethical matters such as these is because we share, we all share the same creator, don't we, who has made us in his image, with a conscience, with a A basic sense of right and wrong written on people's hearts, regardless of whether those people acknowledge who that creator is or even believe in him. But the question nevertheless remains, doesn't it, what's different about Christianity when it's saying many of the same things? Paul is going to show us what's different and what's unique about Christianity in a fascinating way in this passage as he explores with us several Uh, very concrete examples of Christian conduct and Christian uh, behavior. And we're going to cover a lot of ground here. We're going to move pretty fast. Each one of these verses could really be uh, its own sermon or series of sermons. But we're going to try to cover it all in one shot, and hopefully, hopefully we can draw out some helpful ideas along the way. But before we get there, a couple of quick points about this passage. First, each and every one of these examples, each of these behaviors that we're going to be talking about, they all concern our relationships, our relationships with one another in the church, and our relationships with those outside of the church, too. Our growth as Christians, our conduct as Christians, it does not occur occur in a vacuum. It does not occur in isolation. It happens in the real world, in the real and often messy world, of interpersonal relationships. And so Paul is going to be showing us how grace can be made visible among us and around us in the ways that we treat one another. The second thing I want to point out is that with each one of these examples, Paul talks about here, there's going to be there's going to be a pattern. There's going to be a pattern. You're going to see a, a negative prohibition from Paul. It's going to say, don't do this. And that negative prohibition is going to be balanced by a corresponding positive command. command. He's going to say, do that. He's going to say, don't do this, but instead, do that. that. That's going to be the pattern. And if you were uh, with us last week, I hope that pattern sounds somewhat familiar. Last week, Paul said, if you're ever going to change, if you're ever going to uh, grow and mature as a Christian, you need to continually take off the old self, you need to reject the uh, your old ways of thinking, your old ways of living. You need to put on the new self. You need to put on your new identity. And you need to be renewed in the truth of that new identity. Paul said, that's how you change as a Christian. Take off the old. Put on the new. Be renewed. And Paul is going, Paul is going to show us the way today very specifically. He's going to apply this model. And he's going to apply this method to these various specific areas of our lives in this passage today. And one last thing before we dive in, for each of these examples, for each of these behaviors, Paul is going to tell us, he's going to tell us why. He's going to give us the reason why we should be doing them. In fact, a, a theological reason is going to be either stated or implied by Paul in each one of these uh, examples. And so he doesn't just say do these things because they're right or because I said so. He tells you why. He tells you why you should do these things in light of the gospel. And it is here, it is in the why, where the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness of the Christian approach to uh, ethics is going to emerge. The uniqueness of Christian behavior is as much about the why as it is about the what. And we're going to see that Uh, Right from the get-go here, as we jump into verse 25, where Paul starts uh, talking about lies and truth. Listen to verse 25. He says, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. And so you see this pattern I mentioned, right? A negative prohibition, put away lying, a positive command, speak the truth. But he also gives the underlying theological reason for doing it, the motive for doing it. He says we are all members of one another. We are one in Christ together. Now you may say, well, what does it matter why I do what I do if I'm doing the right thing? Isn't it enough that I tell the truth and do these things Paul says? What does it matter why I'm telling the truth or why I'm doing these things? Well, Paul would say it matters a great deal. is going to remind us that our motives matter more than we might think. And he's going to remind us of that at every turn today. It actually may get a bit uncomfortable at times as you examine your own hearts, and I hope you will, will. I have been this past week as I've studied this text. At my home, there's often a project or a chore that my wife Carol asks me to do, but that I'm not getting done in a timely fashion. But finally, I get it done. I do it But why do I do it? Why Why did I get get it done? done? Did I do it because I knew that if I waited much longer, Carol would grow angry or upset with me? Was I motivated to get it done because I wanted to avoid a negative reaction from her? Or a negative consequence for myself? Or maybe I got it done because I wanted her to think that I was a really good husband that week. Because I knew I was about to start dropping some hints about that new car that I had my eye on. Maybe I thought that by getting it done, it might help her to see me a certain way, to think of me in a certain way, so that I might ultimately get what I really wanted for myself. Or maybe, just maybe, I got that project done because of who Carol is to me. And because I'm incredibly grateful for her. I'm grateful to have her as my wife. I know that I don't deserve her as my wife. She's a a gift from God in every way. Maybe I got it done... Because I love her. And I want her to know it. I, I want her to see it. And so you see why motives can matter so much. Three different motivations. Fear, pride, and love. Three completely different reasons for doing what I did. And only one of them was about Carol. Only one of them was honoring and loving toward Carol. The other two were, were all about me. Back to verse 25, Paul says, Be honest, tell the truth, but but why? Let's push this a bit further. Think about this with me. How do you get a child growing up to be an honest person? How do you train your kids to tell the truth? Many parents, without even realizing it, do it through fear or through pride or through both. Teaching a child to be an honest person using fear goes like this. It says, Uh, You'd better tell the truth, because if you don't, you'll be punished. Nobody likes a liar. God doesn't like liars. Not only that, you'll be found out. Nobody will trust you. You won't have any friends. You'll lose relationships. You'll lose jobs. Therefore, don't lie. Be very afraid if you lie and when you lie, because it won't get you where you want to go in your life. Now, another way to teach a child to be honest uses pride, and that goes like this. You don't want to be like those people, do you? Those people lie. Those are bad people. We're not like that. Our family, our people, we're honest people. We're people uh, of integrity. The reason you shouldn't be like them is because you're better than them. We're better than them. We're better than that. In both cases, if a child is being told these things, what's the motivation they are being given not to lie to people? Well, it has nothing at all to do with the people being lied to, right? Do you see that? Instead, it's it's all about them. And what that means is you can be an incredibly honest person, but the reason that you're an honest uh, person, the motivation behind it is that you think it's, it's what's going to pay off for you the most in the long run. But here's the thing. If that's your motivation, there is a time coming when telling the truth will not pay off, and you will... Uh, stumble. You will lie, you will cheat, you will falsify, you will embezzle, you will do something like that. And then you'll find yourself looking in the mirror asking, why did I do that? I wasn't, I wasn't raised to live like that. But yes, you were. Don't you see? You were raised to look out for number one. Paul says, put away the lies, put on honesty. Why? Because it's no longer about you, it's about us. Look at what's been done for us. Look at look at who you were. Look at who you are. We're members of one another, one family, one faith, one body. And to lie to one another and deceive one another is like a stab into the very vital organs of that body. It's an assault on the unity and the harmony of what Christ has done and what Christ is building through us. And so motives matter more than you might think. In verses 26 to 27, Paul starts talking about anger now. Anger and opportunity. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And so the pattern continues here, doesn't it? But not in the way that you might expect. The positive command here, the positive command is this, be angry. That's what Paul tells you to put on, anger. The negative prohibition is do not sin. And the reason why you should not sin uh, when you're angry because when you do you're giving the devil an opportunity, he says. Now this is very interesting. Christianity you see has a very unique understanding of anger. Paul doesn't say if you get angry at times hang in there it'll be okay. He doesn't say suppress it or hide it or or just let it go. He says do it. He says be angry Paul is telling us in this verse that not only is it sometimes okay to be angry, what he's actually saying is that very often it's absolutely wrong not to be angry. And this tells us a couple of things, I think. First, there must be a right type of anger and a wrong type of anger, a righteous anger and a sinful anger. Because here in this verse, Paul says, be angry. But down in verse 31, when we get there, he's going to say, put away your anger, But we also see in verse 26 that while there is a time to be angry, and that anger at times can be justified, the time to stay angry is short. You see, anger is the moral equivalent of adrenaline. It can be a good and healthy thing to experience in the right ways and at the right times and in the right doses, but a steady flow of it or a sudden surge of it can can do much damage to the heart. Anger is a very destructive energy. It, it can destroy. It does destroy. And that sounds negative, and it can be negative, but it doesn't have to be negative. Tr- because truthfully, there are a lot of things in this world and in the human heart that need to be destroyed, and many of these things should rightly arouse our anger. They do it with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God, the anger of God is revealed. Is being revealed. That verb is in the present progressive tense, and what that means is that God is continuously angry at the sight of sin and evil in this world. Jesus got angry while He lived on this earth. He got angry at sin, at self righteousness, at disease, and at death, and He and He did something about it. He got angry at those things, and He He released His anger. Against those things in, in productive and yet sinless ways, he healed many diseases that were ravaging his people. He raised Lazarus from the death. And if you think about it, Jesus used his anger, in a bigger sense, he used his anger against Satan, against sin, and against death to uh, come to our defense in a way by, by going to the cross. Anger is always aroused in order to come to the defense of something, but the question is, what is that something? That's perhaps one of the simplest ways you can tell the difference between righteous anger and sinful anger, between good anger that Paul is talking about here in verse 26 and the bad anger that he says you need to put away in verse 31. When Paul says, be angry, he's talking about an anger that wants to defend what is good and what is right. An anger that wants to attack and destroy in productive ways whatever may be threatening that good. And so we should be angry about some of the things we see around us in this city and in in this world that are devastating people near and far. We should be angry about injustice and oppression, about homelessness and addiction, about racism and, and human trafficking. trafficking. And we, we are angry about these things. And that anger is what compels us into action to come to the defense of what is good and right and to work in various ways through various partnerships to help make a tangible difference in some of these areas. When Paul says be angry, he's saying be angry like that. Let it drive you to the defense of the defenseless and to the defense of what is good. But do not sin, he says, in the process. And here's where anger and sin can get intertwined for you and I. Here's where things can often uh, go wrong with you and I because because of the sinful nature that still lives within us. Too often, you see, our anger is provoked, not in defense of what is right and what is good. All too often, if we're not careful, we find that our anger is aroused, not in defense of what is good, but in defense of ourselves and in defense of our egos. All too often, we find that our anger rises up to defend our pride and our reputations, to defend our personal agendas. And what happens is we get angry and we release that anger, not to attack problems, not to attack evil and injustice, but to attack people. And Paul says that we must be very careful with this. It's a very dangerous and very slippery slope. The next time you feel anger rising up within you, let me encourage you to slow down and take a breath before things get carried away and ask yourself this question What am I defending right now and why? Is this anger leading me into sin? Am I giving the devil an opportunity? What am I defending here? Inevitably, if I slow down while I'm angry, before I get too angry, nine times out of ten, when I ask myself, What am I defending? the answer is, It's my own pride. It's my own ego, and I need to sit down and slow down and, and, and repent because I know that anger is, is all about me, and it's leading me into sin, and it's uh, leading me to open doors that I know I should not open. Next, in verse 28, Paul begins talking about taking and giving, and notice the pattern continu- continues here. He says, let, no, let, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. And so you see the pattern. First, the negative prohibition, don't steal, let the thief no longer steal. Then the positive command, instead he is to do honest work with his own hands. This verse is restating the eighth commandment of the Bible, right? Thou shalt not steal. And it's also adding something to it. Don't steal and do honest work, he says. Now many of you may say that sounds good. I think I've got this one, I've got a job, and I haven't stolen lately. But then things get a bit uncomfortable for most as Paul tells us why, why we should be working and not stealing. He says the goal and the purpose that God has for his people is not reached by uh, when they simply quit stealing. And the goal and the purpose that God has for his people is not reached when they start doing honest work with their hands. Rather, it seems that the goal of God for his people and all of their gainful employment is reached not when they work in order to have, but when they work in order to give. There's a challenging dynamic here for us to think about. A person can steal in order to have. A person can work in order to have. One is illegal. One is legal. And Paul says they're both wrong. Most of us are quite familiar with working hard in order to have. I know I am. That's how I spent most of my life before uh, meeting Jesus. Work so you can have. It's it's an American ideal. It's the American dream, right? You make it happen. You earn it. It's, it's yours. Do hard work. Do honest work. And you can have uh, many nice things. You can have a very nice and comfortable life. It's the American dream. It's an American ideal. But... But Paul says it's not really a Christian ideal. The most radical thing about this verse for people like you and I is that we are commanded to do all of our secular work with a view not toward satisfying our own hopes and dreams of big homes and nice cars and far away vacations, but we're told to do all of our work with a view toward meeting the needs of others and sharing with anyone in need, Paul says. This is a hard teaching for many of us, but it's a revolutionary teaching if you're willing to press into it and trust God with it. Do you see what this does? It takes all of your life, including your work and your career, and it turns it into a work of grace. You see, Paul wants you to think of your work and your wealth as a means to display God's grace that is at work in you. Don't steal to have, don't work to have, but work to have in order to give, he says. And this does require walking by faith. It requires being content with what we do have, but it also requires being discontent with what others don't have. So are you working in order to get and to have, or are you working in order to give and to serve? And There is a balance To be sure in this, don't get me wrong, it is possible to do both, to both have and to give, to enjoy God's grace and God's blessings in your life, but to share them generously too with those who are in need. And so are you doing that? How are you using your work and your wealth to display God's grace that is working in you? The Apostle Paul next turns from the use of our hands and the use of our resources to the use of our mouths. Speech is a wonderful gift of God. It is one of our human capacities which reflects our likeness to him. God speaks, and uh, like him, we also speak. Plants don't speak. Animals don't speak. Human beings speak, because we're made uniquely in his image. And just as God can create and destroy using his words, so can we in our interactions with one another. Our words have power. They have the power to tear down and they have the power to build up. And the battle over how we use our words, it begins in the heart. For for the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Paul says here in verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth. And that word that Paul uses here, the Greek word for foul, it was often used to refer to something something that was rotten. Like rotten fruit or a rotten fish that had been sitting out in the sun for too long. Spoiled, decaying, putrid. And so when applied to our speech, this foul language, whether we're talking about uh, dishonest speech or destructive speech, whether we're talking about unkind speech or vulgar or profane Speech, it's speech that is not nourishing, that is to be sure. There may be a stench to it, it may make you feel sick, and it could harm you or hurt you if you take in too much of it. And so we might expect Paul to tell us to clean up our language, to use words that are not vulgar or rotten or corrupt. But instead, instead of proposing clean language for us, Paul proposes a whole new way of thinking about language. Instead of saying you don't need this sort of language to communicate your intention, he says the root issue is is what are your intentions? Are your intentions loving and gracious? In other words, the issue for Paul is not really language at all. The issue is love. The issue is not whether our mouth can avoid foul language. The issue is whether you're using your mouth as as a means of giving grace. He shifts from the external fruit the internal root. He shifts from what we say to why we say it. That's the issue, and it has been all along for Paul. It's as much about the why as it is about the what. And do you see the shift in verse 29? He doesn't say, uh, let no foul talk come out of your mouth, but instead let uh, fresh clean talk come out of your mouth. (laughs) No, he says, let no foul talk come out of your mouth. But ask yourself this, am I... Am I using my mouth and am I using my speech as a means of grace? Am I meeting a need with the words that are coming out of my mouth? Am I building up faith into the people to whom I'm speaking? And do you see what Paul is doing? He just got done telling us that our work and our wealth are to be displays of God's grace. And now he tells us that all of our speech should be... A display of grace, too. These are amazing verses about the grace of God at work in our hearts. And as a result of being at work in our hearts, uh, they show God's grace on display in our lives. And so do you see how all-encompassing and far-reaching Paul is saying our Christian faith should be extending? Finally, our final point in verses 30 to 32, forgiven and forgiving... Must read them. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. And so what I hope you've been hearing today, at least at some level, is that Christianity is never interested in uh, moral behavior for the sake of, of moral behavior. The gospel instead digs down deep and develops entirely new motives within us as we, as we take it in and as we think it through. It doesn't just say put off falsehood and put on the truth because that's, because that's the right thing to do. Now that is the right thing to do, but that's not what Paul says here. Paul says when you're angry, when you're bitter, you don't just say to yourself that is wrong, this is wrong, I have to stop being angry and bitter, stop it. Or when you're struggling with honesty, the way to change isn't just to tell yourself it's it's wrong to lie, I need to stop this, I shouldn't tell lies. A good person doesn't act like this, a good Christian doesn't act like this. Paul says that doesn't work, and you already know that doesn't work, and so do I. Instead, the way this works, I think, is that you need to see Jesus nailed to the cross, hanging there, bleeding out for your forgiveness, taking his last breath for your redemption, dying for your freedom, and rising again to give you a new hope and to give you a new future. And you have to ask yourself, how do I I respond to that? It is stunning and staggering what he has done for me. You have to look at Jesus hanging on that cross, and you have to say, look at his kindness. Look at his compassion that he would go so far for us. Look at how he's loved me. Look at how he's... Uh, been truthful to me about myself and about my need. Look at how he's forgiven me by grace, uh, through faith, and all I had to do was say yes. And surely, in light of these things, surely I can love others. Surely I can be honest with others. Surely I can forgive others as he has forgiven me. What Paul has been saying all along is not to stop these things because they're bad or to start these things because they're good. No, he says you need to stop and start these things because of who you are now. Look at who you are in Christ. Look at, look at what He's done. Paul's entire approach to personal change last week was that uh, you've been made new. You've been made new so that you can can live new. So put off the old self, put off the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living, put off the lies. And put on your new self. Put on your new identity. Consider who you are. Consider what's been done. Be renewed in that truth. Because as you do, as you do that, changes changes just start happening in your heart and in your life. You start using your words differently. You start experiencing anger differently. You start seeing your work and your wealth differently because of who you are and because of what he's done. Put on the new self means remember your new identity. That's the secret. That's what makes the Christian religion different than every other religion or system of ethics. As a Christian, what you do and why you do it is driven by who you are and what's been done to make you who you are. Do you know what else makes Christianity unique? Did you notice something in this final section of this passage that that seems a little bit out of place? Right in the middle of all these rules about your behavior, Paul's saying don't lie, control your temper, control your tongue. And right in the middle, Paul says, and don't breathe the Holy Spirit. Don't breathe God's Holy Spirit. And you won't find this anywhere else in any other system of belief. Every other approach says don't lie and don't steal because those things are wrong. Or they will say don't lie and don't steal because there are negative consequences for you if you do those things. And, of course, those things are true, but that's not what Paul says here. What Paul says is don't do it because of who's living inside of you, your your comforter, your counselor, your guide, and your God. Paul says don't do it because you will grieve your dear friend who loves you and lives in you. And so you're not just breaking the rule when you sin, you're breaking his heart. You only grieve over someone if you really love them. You only grieve over someone who is very special to you. And our God, the creator of the universe and everything in it, has by his choice bound up his emotions with us in a way that Paul says affects him. He is emotionally affected and grieved when we do our own thing and when we go our own way. And so let that dawn on you. Let that settle in. Let that sink in. That can and will transform your heart and your life from the inside out. Don't grieve your friend. He loves you. He lives within you. That's, that's the dynamic. That's the heart. That's how, that's how different you are. Put off the old self. Be renewed. Put on the new self. Let's pray.